This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. okay. When I find my prince, this is the song we're going to dance to. And there's only one way to find out if it's you. Shouldn't it, girls? I'm going to stab Holly in the heart, just like you did to me. students, you have hereby been accepted to Skier University, or as we like to call it, Skier U, formerly known as 21 Jump Skier. I'm done with that. I'm Bradford Lorick. Thank God. And I'm Eric Winnick. Scare U is a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. And of course, we call this podcast Scare U because two of us are going back to school today, as it were, to learn something new. And these folks will be experiencing a horror film they haven't seen yet. As assigned by a true horror aficionado, or for the purposes of this show, your guide to all that's gory, your mainstay of mayhem, you. Making you two our fresh princes of fright. (laughs) Joining us today to discuss the 2009 film The Loved Ones is a very special guest, all the way from the Upper West Side of New York City, our friend Gina Gianfrido. Gina is a playwright and television writer. She is a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Drama for her plays Becky Shaw and Rapture Blister Burn. Her other plays include After Ashley, which won an Obie Award, U.S. Drag, which won the Susan Smith Blackburn Prize, and Can You Forgive Her? She has written for the television dramas the very excellent The Alienist, FBI Most Wanted, Cold Case, Borgia, House of Cards, and not one, not two, but three incarnations of Law and Order. Thank you for joining us, Gina. How are you doing and what are you up to these days? Hi, I'm happy to be here. Um, What am I doing? Well, I'm not on a TV staff for the first time in a while. So I'm, uh, I'm working on a television pilot and um, I'm working on adapting a novel for theater. Um, and I'm not supposed to say what the novel is, <laughs> which I'm totally happy not to say it because, sure. uh, you know, I, I feel like on these big projects, they tend to burn through writers. So I, I don't really want to have, 
you know, commit to this podcast that I was the writer on X project. No, and then I get don't fired. do that. Yeah. Don't no. do that. So, um, so yeah, that's a big secret, but, um, yeah, that and a TV pilot. So uh, for those of you who may not know, Eric and I used to be the marketing department for Playwrights Horizons, one of our leading national theaters. Uh, and we both worked on Gina's magnificent play, Rapture, Blister, Burn, which was directed by our friend Peter Dubois uh, and starred Amy Brenneman, Lee Turgeson, Kelly Overby, who we love, Virginia Call, Beth Dixon. Um, but I think the best part of that entire experience was that we got to know Miss John Frito herself. Yes, excellent cast. And I got to interview Gina as part of Playwrights Horizons' late lamented podcast program. And we will link to that for you on our show page. But listen, enough about our old country home. Gina, the first thing we like to ask our guests is, what is your history with the horror genre? And do you have a favorite horror film? Yes. <clears throat> so I did I did a little bit of, you know, a deep dive into, you know, my my personal history with horror <laughs> films. And I was sort of surprised at, at what I found out. Um, between the years of 75, 1975 and 80, so that would have been for me ages six to eleven. I think the 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 overarching theme is that, you know, I had parents who didn't shield us from anything. Um, and so I consumed a lot of real world darkness and a lot of TV darkness um, during those years. And I think there's probably um, a relationship between the two. I know like the Jonestown Massacre, um, 1978 was a big one um, that we were, you know, the kids were not supposed to know about, but of course, you know, that just makes you want to know more. And there was a very, um, a very famous missing child case in the area where I grew up in 1975 that my mother talked incessantly about. So I feel like there was a lot of fear and horror in the air. And then all of these horror movies aired on television, cut versions, and my brother and I watched them. And that was, you know, particularly um, the Omen. The Exorcist, uh, Salem's Lot. The Exorcist was a was a huge one for me because I was very Catholic, and it was uh, a story that was based on truth and it happened in Maryland. I lived in D.C., so I went through a period of thinking I was, you know, I was I was going to be possessed. I was a good candidate. So yeah, so I think you know, in in childhood is when it kind of took hold with me, and. You know, it's interesting because I have a daughter that age now. She's 11. And um, whereas, you know, at her age, if I heard something like, you know, that saw the pictures from Jonestown, um, I wanted to know everything. Um, and my my daughter is very clear that she does not want to know. I listen to horror, not horror, uh, true crime podcasts while I cook. And she, from a, a very young age, was like, you got to put those in earphones. Um <laughs> So, and now I do. So I listen to my true crime with, with ear AirPods. So yeah, I think, you know, those were, were formative years and I saw a lot of horror, a lot of horror I shouldn't have seen, but I was, I was hungry for it. And as far as favorite horror, I, I am a, I don't want to say if I'm a purist, I love the original Halloween madly and passionately. Wow. Um, I watch it, you know, I watch it every year like ritual. 
and any, you know, I just saw Halloween ends. I feel very, I don't want to say emotional, but, but that, that, that one moves me. So, um, I can always feel sort of swept away by it. It's interesting to hear you say that because I feel like I'm more like Ava. Like I didn't, I didn't want to expose myself to ugly things when I was younger. Unlike Bradford, who has spoken many times on this podcast about how he also had very sort of permissive parents who were happy to let him watch pretty much anything except for a few films, a few films. I did not seek that stuff out. Um, If I saw it, it was almost by accident. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. And, you know, what what Eric just said, that the sort of one film that I was never allowed, that I was not allowed to see when it was new, though my mother was obsessed with it, was The Silence of the Lambs. Uh, But she gave me the book instead of letting me watch the movie, you know, which is worse, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, well, Gina, you you said you're originally from D.C., but you have a connection to Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Is that right? Yeah, my my whole extended family, my parents were both from Pennsylvania. Um, my mom from Northeast Pennsylvania, my dad from Western Pennsylvania. So, you know, we go to uh, Scranton, Goldsboro, Clifton, that area. And I don't remember how we figured that out, but that was sort of one of our initial sort of points of bonding, oddly. Um, yeah. And, and Wilkes-Barre is where my great-grandparents lived when I was a little boy. Oh. Um, and somehow, of course, you and I also figured out pretty early on that we were both interested in spooky movies. But um, to your point about reading things that you maybe shouldn't have read or being really interested in things like Jonestown, you know, I'll never forget when I was a kid, and this was probably in 1986, there was in a town called West Pittston, which is sort of adjacent to Wilkes-Barre, there was um, a sort of national story about a haunted house called the Smurl Haunting. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, I was about eight years old when it happened, and I was clipping every newspaper article I could about that story. Um, And, you know, years before that, I'd actually seen a hardcover copy of Jay Anson's book, The Amityville Horror, at Mm. my grandmother's house. Um, And, you know, that was sort of how I learned about Ed and Lorraine Warren, who investigated Amityville, and they came in to investigate the Smurl haunting in West Pittston. So I was all over them, all over that story. Um, and I just think it's like the strangest coincidence that you have a relationship to that area too. Yeah, it, no, that is a coincidence. Amityville Horror, just as an aside, that was my first horror movie in the theater. I mm. That was the one that I lobbied hard. I wanted to see it. I wanted to see it. It was 1979. Um, you know, so I would have been 10. My brother would have been eight. Um, and my mother took us, you know, <laughs> I didn't have a hard time with it. I think my brother did. Um, all right. So uh, and then a, a follow up question, you know, without sort of spoiling anything. Have you ever had a prom experience like the one depicted in The Loved Ones? No, no, that's very, very foreign to me. Um, I, I went to a small hippie private high school. So we didn't we didn't do, you know, the kind of classic prom that we all, you know, know from movies like Carrie. Um it was more like little black dresses and, you know, go to a restaurant. Um <laughs> though I will say, you know, Gina, you write great women really strong women, you know, as we mentioned, Rapture Blister Burn was a story about generations of women and and the sort of legacy that 
sort of permeates those relationships. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, Eric, I'll, I'll just say when when we were working on that show, the artwork for that play was a Rosie the Riveter style mm. paper doll icon. Um, Becky Shaw was another play with a strong and, and if I remember correctly, somewhat polarizing female character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I remember when that play came out, I was watching Theater Talk with Michael Riedel and Susan Haskins. You know, we theater nerds, we <laughs> are always trying to keep abreast of everything in the market. And, you know, I remember, like, I, I don't remember if it was Michael or Susan, but they made a comparison to Hedda Gabler. And mm-hmm. they said that um, Becky Shaw was the, you know, new monster woman on the stage. And <laughs> I remember that you disagreed with that and said, like, you don't think she's a monster. You just think she's direct and she gets what she wants. Yeah, I that I I was I was very surprised by um, the audience. I, I don't want to say everyone. I feel like more men were really really put off by her and thought she was a you know a psycho a psychopath. Shocker. Um, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I just thought you know she was kind of one of those classic nineteenth century heroines, you know, who they're poor and they don't want to be poor, so they they push um, to get into another class. Um, with another class of men. And I don't know. I, I didn't think that was so terrible. She's no Lola Stone, though. She's no Lola Stone. But, you know, it's funny you bring this up because y- you all gave me a, a list of movies to choose from. And that is why I um, I chose this one, because I don't think the women get enough opportunity to be the killer. <laughs> Well, I mean, I really hope that you'll deliver some feminist perspective on the loved ones <laughs> and the character of Lola Stone today. So I'm really thrilled that, that it's you the, with whom we are discussing this film. First, let's discuss what this film is about. Uh, Eric, will you give us a brief, spoiler-free synopsis, please? Lola Stone wants to go to prom with Brent, the school hottie, but he's already going with his girlfriend, Holly. So Lola does what any jilted high schooler would do. She and her daddy kidnap Brent and tie him to a chair in their home, where, in an attempt to make prom night worthwhile for Lola the two proceed to torture Brent in excruciating ways. Let's leave it at that. Excellent, sir. So now let's talk about who made this film and who's in this film. Yes, this film is written and directed by Sean Byrne, an Aussie who may be best known for two films, This and The Devil's Candy, and that is about it. Uh, Bradford or Gina, have either of you seen The Devil's Candy? Gina? I have not. Bradford? I haven't seen it either. Okay. Uh, Great. Who's in this film? The Loved Ones features Xavier Samuel as Brent, not to be confused with my brother Brent. Uh, Samuel recently appeared as Cass Chaplin in the much maligned Andrew Dominic film Blonde, uh, and as Scotty Moore in the much maligned Baz Luhrmann film 
Elvis. Uh, the film also features the divine Robin McLeavy as Lola Stone, better known as Princess, the utterly frightful John Brumpton, known only as Daddy, and Victoria Thane as Brent's girlfriend, Holly. Rounding out the film's ensemble are Richard Wilson as Jamie, Jessica McNamee as Jamie's sullen prom date, Mia, and of course, Anne Scott Pendlebury as everyone's favorite catatonic housewife, Bright Eyes. Now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society, the portion of our show where we talk about the numbers, whether they add up, and uh, then we tell you what the critics thought. And then we poke fun at the critics. So The Loved Ones was released as part of the AFI Fest on October 31st, 2009. It then played the San Francisco International Film Festival uh, in May 2010. Uh, it was released sort of steadily around the world until it received its its limited release in the USA in June 2012. The film had a budget of $4 million and it brought in $358,399 worldwide. However, on Rotten Tomatoes, the film holds a rip-snorting 98% among critics and 73% among audiences. Dennis Harvey of Variety said, The film transcends mere torture porn, though there's plenty for the squeamish to squirm over here in its deftly controlled mix of empathy, grotesquerie, and sardonic humor. Anton Battel of Little White Lies claimed, Burns' confident feature debut takes the coming-of-age tropes of John Hughes and adds a hefty dose of campy psychosis, creating a tale of small-town adolescent horror where the growing pains really do hurt. Eric Cohn of IndieWire called the film a terrifying masterpiece that turns high school drama into a literal dead zone. <laughs> and under audience reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, someone named Farah R. said, After finding the loved ones on every must-watch horror movie list, I decided to give it a shot, and boy, do I wish I hadn't. The premise is idiotic, and the antagonist is utterly despicable. There's hardly any plot amidst the senseless gore and endless disgusting scenes. The only horrific thing about this movie is that it exists. Womp womp. Well, now it's our opportunity to Ask the Professor, the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case, and in all cases, is me. So before we get started, I just want to confirm, Gina, that like me, you had not seen this film before we contacted you. No, I had not. Okay. So back to you, Professor. Tell us, what's the John Dory on this film, and why did you foist it on our unsuspecting eyes? Well, I kind of feel like this film is sort of like freshman year art history. You know, it, it functions as a little bit of a survey course. Um, I think it shows its references to other films pretty directly. It does not conceal them at all. 
But what it does is it creates something new for its audience by using those things, those tropes that we may know, those ideas with which we may be familiar um, as a sort of a springboard for a pretty original, uh, dare I say, iconic character in Princess Lola Stone. Uh, and it yields a pretty visceral thrill ride of a movie. And does it have anything to do with the fact that part of it is set in a school? Well, you know, I didn't want to go there exactly, but like many of the films that we've seen as part of Scare University, uh, yes. it takes place uh, at a school at times. Uh, there's a, a prom, which we've encountered in more than a couple of our other mm -hmm. uh, previous uh, explorations. Yes. Um, and so, you know, of course, in that regard, it also seemed very appropriate for us to essay as part of Scare You. Bradford, you know, I was thinking... Um you know, of all these sections we have of this podcast, we have, you know, we have the honor roll, the detention and the superlatives and the math club and debate society and the fire drill. What's our prom? Gosh, I don't know. We should come up with a new segment. Maybe we'll just uh, do that at the end of the season as a wrap up, a celebration, <laughs> and we'll just burn it right to the ground like they do in Tragedy Girls, in Carrie, in so many films. That's true. Do we need dates? Uh, I think we definitely need some prom dates. Oh, blokes and Sheilas, that sounds like the fire drill. Everyone, please leave the building single file. Do not walk, do not run. And should you choose to listen further and you have not seen this film, you have been warned. We are about to spoil the fuck out of this thing. All right, now that we're good to go, let's head directly to Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film or not. We'll be breaking this section up into two segments, honor roll, i.e. what worked, and detention, i.e. what didn't work. But before we get into it, I have to ask you both, uh, Mr. Winnick, Ms. John Frito, I know this was your first time seeing The Loved Ones. So just to sort of establish where we are on the playing field, give me a basic yes or no response. Did you like this film? No. I am afraid not. All right. So let's get into it. Uh, we'll do honor roll first, round robin style. We'll each name a scene or scenes or aspects of this film that worked best for us, given that neither of you liked the film, uh, and then we'll <laughs> hand out detention slips. Uh, so Gina, as our guest, we'll let you go first. What's your first nomination for the honor roll? I think the, the strongest thing about the movie is, is the visuals, that there are some incredibly arresting visuals that you'll never forget. And, you know, along the lines of like, you know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when he's kind of doing that horrible ballet in the middle of the road with the chainsaw, and you can never forget that. I feel like there are a few of them in this movie. Um, the accident that opens it, the reveal of the boys in the basement, I can never never forget. And um, the really beautiful image toward the end of Lola uh, crawling toward the car, kind of using her big knife, almost like a, like a walking stick to pull herself forward. Um, 
they're really beautiful images. All right. Uh, Eric, give us an honor roll nomination. You know, the torture scenes are hard to watch, but gosh darn it, they are indeed creative. Um, with two elements I want to point out as particularly effective, um, the character of the mother, also known as Bright Eyes, sits at the table with a hole in the center of her forehead, um, and the meaning of which does not become entirely clear until Lola and Daddy get out a drill and make for Brent's own skull. And anytime uh, a drill comes out uh, in a horror film, you know you're in for a good time because, you know, nothing good ever comes from a drill in a horror movie. Uh, well, nothing good for the character anyway. Uh, the other thing that's never good is a pit. Uh, we have seen pits used to maximum effect in such films as Silence of the Lambs, Barbarian recently, uh, Bradford, your favorite, Ready or Not. But here it is a truly disgusting mess. And I am always in awe of people that manage to get out of those things. What do you have, Bradford? Well, you know, I think there's something kind of great about how the characters are defined in this film. Um, I'm curious to hear Gina's take on this, but I think um, it, it's pretty unusual in a horror film, especially a low budget horror film, for us to get to know the characters through action rather than through uh, exposition, you know, expository dialogue. Um, and I think it's kind of great how we we learn about the aspects and attributes of the characters that have kind of brought us to this point uh, in, in pretty subtle ways, again, for this genre. Uh, Gina, I'm very curious to know, um, as, as a, a playwright and screenwriter, what is your take on character development? I, I would like to hold that for detention professor <laughs> <laughs> okay. all right um then let's uh, let's keep going with um honor roll nominations gina you got a number two um i think the scene of dad delivering the dress and watching her try it on is um just the right amount of gross i thought that was extremely well done though it does of course get grosser Right. Yes, but there's somehow, I mean, kind of her she her underwear is kind of droopy and not very nice. And, you know, <laughs> her body's not that great. You know, I mean it's it's kind of like it it somehow was more disturbing than if she'd been, you know, buck naked. I agree with you. Interesting. All right, Eric, how about you? On a roll number two. Yes. Uh, one thing I like about this film is that there's a lot of bait and switch. Um, every time you think someone has the upper hand, I mean, this is this is kind of the comedy of the film right here. Every time you think someone has the upper hand, they're right back to where they started or things are somehow worse than before. Uh, so at one point, Brent escapes and climbs up a tree only to have Lola hit him with a rock <laughs> and he falls back down. Uh, Mia's dad, uh, who's a policeman, you think this is it, okay? He's got a gun. He's finally going to close in and grab Lola. But just as he's peering into the pit, and you know this. I mean, you know this is going to happen. She hits him with a hammer, and that's it. He's, you know, he's gone. And then there's that great visual in the film after Holly and Brent are reunited. Uh, and Gina referred to it, this long shot of the car. And on the right side of the screen... <laughs> You see Lola, who's just been run over, starting to crawl toward the car with a knife. 
And you're like, how can this still be going? Um, so I, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I was amused by that. I like that. I like films that kind of play with your expectations a little bit. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm going to talk about from, from my next honor roll mention, I think, um, the, the calibration of influences that go into this film and mm. you know, what we've seen before and how they get kind of recombined, which I think is great because, you know, somebody smarter than I once said that originality is the art of concealing your sources. But again, as I said before, I think the originality here comes through, um, how those uh, those references or antecedents get combined into this new stew. Um, and I think from, you know, very early on when we see that half-dressed person walking down the middle of the road, you know, that sort of harkens to films like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, specifically Michael Bay's remake, where we see a young woman dressed in rags walking down the highway before she kills herself in the back of the kid's van. Um, you Twin know, Peaks I, as well. Exactly. Twin Peaks. Yes. Um, I think that Lola Stone is kind of equal parts Carrie White and Annie Wilkes. Um, I mm. think it owes a lot to misery. Um, you know, Interesting. In, in fact, in, in how the cop is dispatched and you know, in this film, it's not a hammer that she gets him with. She gets him with a cleaver right between the eyes. Um, but it's very similar to how Annie Wilkes kills the sheriff in misery when he's looking down a flight of stairs uh, and sees Paul at the bottom of the stairs and, and Annie blows him away with a shotgun. But, you know, I mean, e even things like um, the people under the stairs when we reveal the pit, oh, God. Uh, you know, um, I, I Bradford, I thought about including people under the stairs in my list of pit movies. I did not include it because to me it's not a pit. To me, it's like it's a it's like a it's the cellar. It's it's oh, like this. Sure, I, I'm not suggesting that in people under the stairs they're in a pit, but it's okay, like okay. The feel of those you know lobotomized shrieking victims at the bottom <laughs> of something, um, you know, who, who she um, she entreats to sing for their supper of roadkill. You know, mm. um, uh, I, I mean, I was also, as I was watching it again, I thought, I mean, did he see the original Adams Family movie where Christina Ricci, you know, it's, it's the Halloween scene and Christina Ricci as Wednesday is dressed as herself. And when somebody asks what she is, she says, this is my costume. I'm a homicidal maniac. They look just like everyone else. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, there's a, a dash of can't hardly wait, but then there's also like a sprinkling of the descent in there. Um, you know, uh, the, the dinner scene could be straight out of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original Toby Hooper. You yeah, know, I you see know. it. Um, I can see that. And so, you know, again, I think that that when this works, it works because of how it takes those those um, antecedents and remixes them, you know. Um, and mm. I think the trailer calls it the Texas Chainsaw Massacre meets 16 Candles. And it, it, <laughs> it kind of, yeah. works. Um, you know, and I mean, I think there's references to things like Prom Night 2. And, um, you know, there's something very natural born killers about Lola in her kind of gleeful relationship to violence. Um, there's something yes. like uh, the excellent film Audition uh, that I think 
Oh, wait, wait, wait. I have to ask, Gina, have you seen Audition? <clears throat> Actually, no. I've been um, warned not to see it. You know, you, Gina, of all people who has, you know, allowed yourself to be subjected to certain films, I would think that that you would um, really appreciate that one. I, I would actually ask you to put that on your list. I will. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the torture porn. Um, and I feel like, like Wolf Creek, which I should have liked, I was really put off by. So I huh. try to avoid the torture movies, but, um, I, well. I would actually think there's say, and Bradford, you can back me up that there's a lot more to audition than just the torture. It's, it's very true. Um, I mean, it's a, a very stylish, artfully made film. It's completely bonkers. And talk uh, about bait and switch, too. I mean, that is the ultimate bait and switch film. Well, I mean, I think sort of similarly uh, in in this film, Audition is kind of two movies at once. I think mm. the, the structure of this one, you know, which I think I will talk about a little bit when we hand out detention slips, mm. uh, you know, um, it, it doesn't function the same way as Audition. Um, but I, I do feel like if you cut this film apart, you could make two totally different movies from the the sort of shifting um, yeah. storylines and locations. It's so interesting. Yes, I'm going to refer to that as well. It's so interesting you, you mentioned that. Um, can I mention my third? It's very short. Of course. I just have to say, nice use of Lonesome Loser by the Little River Band in the beginning to establish the relationship between Brent and his dad. It's too bad it doesn't pay off, but... Uh, Love that song. Yeah, yeah it, it is a little on the nose, though. I mean, I, I, I would argue that Lola is the lonesome loser who's going to undo uh, his life. Maybe. I just like the song. Oh, I know. It's a great song. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, Gina, that, that prompts a kind of interesting question, which is, who are the loved ones that the title refers to? Yeah, that's on my list. I have no idea. Bradford, do you have a third honor roll? Sure. Um... I, I like the way Lola is handled. Um, you know, she um, she she's not obviously an outcast. You know, her sort of styleless fashion is on par with all the other girls at school. So there's no weird class difference that makes her, you know, need to take revenge on somebody. You know, and also sort of part and parcel with that is that Brent is not depicted as being a bad guy. He's not, no. you know, someone who's clearly been torturing her. He himself is pretty broken. And the only reason he turns her down seems to be that he already has a serious girlfriend that he's going to the mm -hmm. dance with. And I think that's kind of an interesting character choice and one that we don't see very often. Detention, after school, both of you. You'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me? You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? M motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. Okay. Now, as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, and by the way, just for those who are wondering who Ernie Joslovitz is, you can find it in the FAQ section of our website. He is a real person. Uh, I do believe he is still with us. And he did have one show that ran at the public theater. So as Ernie used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips 
Again, Gina, as our guest, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you think deserves detention? So I would, I call this wishes, hopes, and dreams in uh, that I don't know what they are. I, um, I don't know what Lola wants and I'm hung up on, um, that she seems to want to go to prom, but what she stages in that house doesn't resemble a prom in any way. She sits at the dinner table with her parents and her date and they eat chicken and drink milk. (laughs) And I just don't know why she goes there. I mean, if I'm going to stage a prom in my house, I mean, I'm mute, you know, music decorate, you know, um, I, I just didn't know. Yeah. I couldn't make sense of that. Also, I found myself a little hung up on what if he had said yes um, when she asked him to the prom. I'm not Mm. entirely convinced that is going to the prom her motivation. I don't know that it is. And if it's not, is it, is it pure sadism? Is it some kind of hatred of men? Mm. Um, I, I just, I'm not sure what makes Lola run. Ha ha ha. (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, whatever Lola wants. She does get, yes. All right. Um, Eric, <laughs> give, us a, give us a detention slip. Happy to. Um, so there are really three stories in this movie. And one thing that really bugged me is how disjointed the whole film seems. You have this sort of A plot, which is Brent, Lola, Daddy, and Bright Eyes, and what's happening in the, in the House of Horrors. Then you have sort of two B plots. You have Jamie and Mia and their crazy night of drinking, smoking, and fucking. And then you have Carla, uh, which is who's Brent's mom, who's freaking out, and Mia's parents, all of whom have lost loved ones <clears throat> in the town as a result of accidents or abductions. The problem for me was they don't ever seem to coalesce into a single story. Yes, these characters are connected because they're friends or relations, but to me, it still feels like three separate tales. Though I will say, Eric, I think the connective tissue for all of it, for me, is that it, it seems to kind of be showing in a microcosm how how acts of violence can ripple through a whole community. You know, I think many mm. of the characters who we meet are kind of directly impacted by Lola's behavior and her past acts of violence. Um Brent's friend Jamie's prom date, Mia, Mia Valentine, is revealed to be the sister of one of Timmy previous victims. The the boy we saw walking down the road at the beginning of the film, yes. whose appearance causes Brent's car accident that kills his father. Um, so we see, you know, the impact of 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 Lola's um psychopathy as kind of the engine of the entire story. Um, you know, Mia obviously is, uh, is, is deeply disturbed by her missing brother who has not been found by her father. Who's the cop who shows up and is dispatched again by Lola. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, I think there's something to those kinds of narrative aspects that may sort of, at first glance feel disjointed, but they're all linked through Lola. 
And so I don't necessarily hate that, but I mean, again, you know, to hand out a detention slip, um, I think structurally it could probably have been handled better. Um, you know, uh, like I said before, I think that if you cut this film apart into sort of the teenage high school dance storyline and the um, kidnapping and torture of Brent by Lola and her father, Eric, you know, you have two totally divergent, disparate, unrelated things. Right, right. Um, kind of been cut together in a way that is perhaps not entirely successful. Yeah, it's like it's like you have this sort of torture porn film meets dazed and confused. Yeah. Which I'd like to see someday, actually. <laughs> so link later, get on that. Um <laughs> Gina, do you have a second detention slip? Yes. So my second detention slip is what I call what is the real of it. And I have to say, as you know, a little bit of background, you know, I think in writing for television, you know, there are all these creative executives who justify their salaries by trying to poke holes in your script and say, well, but I don't, you know, how does that work? So even if it's not in the script, I feel like it has to be in the writer's mind what what the actual real of it is. And this, I, I can't make it make sense. And I'll, I'll, I'll sort of go over a little bit why. So Brent is boy number five to meet his fate with Lola. So is she doing one a year? So she started in eighth grade. And then it's revealed weirdly that her first two victims were children that she knew as a child. So then I think, well, did she wait for them to grow up or did they grow up in the pit, which would be horrible? So I'm, I'm, I get a little bit hung up. Oh, and also if all of the, if five boys have disappeared from this town, why, why, is everyone walking around going, I don't know where Brent could be. Like, you know, <laughs> it, it doesn't seem like, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, and I'm also a little bit hung up and I, I, I really spend some time thinking about this because Halloween is my favorite horror movie. And when you tell me Michael Myers can't die, I accept that. I, I have no problem accepting that. But I feel like here I bumped on stuff like you can lobotomize people and keep them as pets because I'm just thinking, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer tried that. It doesn't work. They die. And I'm kind of like, wow, these people have been in the pit. How long they haven't bled out. I'm, I got very kind of um, obsessed with the minutia of, of what didn't make sense. Thank you for bringing up Dahmer. I meant to do that earlier. Um, you know, I think the 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 influence of Dahmer on Lola's character is very clear, uh, and of course, with um, with Ryan Murphy's very popular Dahmer series on Netflix right now, I feel like he is you know once again flavor of the month in terms of uh, looking back at true crime. But I do think um, it, it's a it's a kind of interesting reference to give a young woman those kinds of attributes. Um, but I, I would like to tease something out with you, Gina, when you're talking about um, the age at which Lola probably started doing this. I'm curious about what the relationship is between Lola and her father and the psychopathy that obviously runs very deep in the Stone family. Yeah. I mean, that was another one that I sort of felt like by the end of the film, there's going to be a reveal about what is the deal in this family. I mean, number my number one question being, why do they call mom bright eyes? Like, I, I'm 
so angry that wasn't explained to me by the end. I desperately wanted to know. So I feel like I'm not sure what what happened in that family. And I couldn't tell you if I think she was made a monster or born a monster. Um, we do get a hint of maybe sec maybe sexual abuse. Um, yeah, it's it's maybe it's a taste thing. I mean, I kind of wanted I wanted those questions answered, but it but you know, it sounds maybe Bradford, like you, you prefer the mystery. Well, I don't know if I prefer the mystery, but I do kind of enjoy untangling it for myself when I watch this film. You know, I wonder if, um, you know, to your point, was she born a monster or was she made a monster? I might ask that of you in a different way, which is, is it her father's influence on Lola that has created her in this way, or is it the other way around? Is this the father of a deeply disturbed child who has been accommodating and accommodating and accommodating um, her terrible behavior uh, in a way that has has caused him to sort of go off the rails too? I, I see him as accommodating. I feel like she is running that show. You know, we see, we're shown that she has all of these very childlike drawings all over her room. And then, you know, and one of the tortures is, you know, now it's time for me to draw. And she, you know, takes a knife and carves a heart into his chest. I feel like she's making the decisions and dad is accommodating. I I don't know where mom is in all of this, and I'm not sure why they're keeping her around. I think that's really interesting. And I think that there are moments where you can see... uh, probable discomfort on her father's face when she's asking him to do certain things or, you know, the the scene that you talked about earlier, that kind of lewd and lascivious moment of his gaze at her when she's changing into her dress. Um, But then, of course, there's also the moment when we're listening to I'm Not Pretty Enough again. uh, and, And she's kind of slow dancing with Brent while her father is sprinkling glitter confetti over the two of them. And she's talking about how that's the song that's going to play at her wedding when she meets her prince. But then the dance becomes between Lola and her father. And she says that the reason that none of the other boys are the right ones is that her father is the prince. And there's that moment when you think they're probably going to have some kind of a kiss while they're dancing, uh, you know, in, in the living room. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I just think that the the father's character is is complicated and truly interesting because I don't know whose fault all of this is. Yeah, I don't either. And I feel like in that scene where he delivers the dress to her, I felt the look on his face was, oh, no, we're, we, we're going to do this again, really? It's, you know, like, I feel like he, there was a reluctance that I, I felt in that moment. I mean, mom is, a, mom is a huge mystery. I don't know if, if there's something between her and her mother that make her want to steal dad for her own. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Though I will say with regard to the mother, as I was watching the film and kind of dictating my thoughts into my notes on my phone, uh, there's a a moment when when Lola is about to smother bright eyes uh, and she says, good night, mommy, which I think is a reference to the German horror film, which has just been remade, good night, mommy, Mm -hmm. but also humorously, 
every time I said bright eyes, it auto-corrected to burritos. So, wow. Uh, <laughs> wow. So there's a note that says something about when Lola has smothered burritos, who <laughs> turns out is her actual mother. And it just made me laugh every time I looked at it. I've got a sort of a, this is sort of the, the larger one, and then I have a small one. Uh, this sort of follows on the heels of what you've been saying, which, so the letterbox description of this film starts with the line, the loved ones is what happens when puppy love goes horribly, violently wrong. And I read that and I was thinking, do we actually see puppy love? Did something get cut out of this film? Because besides her little scrapbook and the one scene where he politely declines her request, and we don't also we also don't really see much of the lead up to her asking him if at, if at all. We we don't see anything uh, of the lead up, which makes you wonder why is Lola doing this to Brent. And if there is no explanation other than he rejected her politely in school, then you have the question, is Lola pure evil? And is this film, in fact, a meditation on the nature of evil? Which in my mind, it is not, because I don't think this film is smart enough to be that. I I felt similarly that the story makes more sense to me if Lola picks out a boy that she wants to be Prince Charming. She Mm. brings him home and the plan is for them to fall in love. Right. But like, you know, James Caan in Misery, he doesn't act the way he's supposed to act and she turns on him. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't think that was the mechanism of it. It seemed to me like he was being picked out for an evening of torture. Yeah. I I think that's entirely plausible, which which makes Lola a serial killer with no heart and 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 makes the the film and the ending very nihilistic in the sense that it's not about someone who is spurned as you've said Gina it's about someone who just has revenge on her mind mm-hmm. you know something that i want to talk about and i'm not sure if this is detention worthy or not but it it does sort of provoke a question for me I, I don't think that I would be the only uh, member of the audience for the loved ones who might make uh, an analogous relationship to Christ uh, in the character of Brent. When Brent and Holly are having their um, anatomical exploration in Holly's car and Brent's shirt comes off revealing his razor blade necklace, we see wounds on his side. Um, when Lola's father hammers his foot to the floor with a knife, is that another sort of Christ reference or a reference to the wounds of Christ? Um, you know, and again, when he refuses to cry, is that showing him as kind of a martyr here that that allows him to survive the the torture of this situation. It's um, so and- interesting that you you bring this up. I, I honestly, I think you're giving this film way too much credit. I mean, I, I, I think the idea that there would be Christ symbolism in this, um, that, that he's sort of some martyr character. I just think Sean Byrne set out to make a nasty film that had some shocks and horrors in it. I, I, I'm sorry to disagree, but I just don't think it's that deep. I'm, but, but I think there's something in his his sort of disaffectedness and his kind of flirtation with death that we see earlier when he's climbing the cliff face and, you know, he, he's 
obviously contemplating whether or not he's going to let go or not. But when you see him sort of, when you see his hand kind of slip, um, he comes to the realization that in fact, he does not want to die. We, we understand that with him. I mean, Mm -hmm. Gina, as a, as a Catholic, where do you, how do you read any of this? Brent's character was my, my number three detention. Um, I think it's really interesting what you're saying about Brent accepting his fate because he believes he deserves pain because of um, the accident that killed his father. Mm-hmm. Um, that scene where he's climbing the rocks, I, I did think that was a suicide attempt in which he loses his nerve. I read it not as I don't want to die, but as I'm a, it's going to be really awful and painful, so I can't do it. So I I would buy into that he, you know, and he's a cutter, that he, you know, he he craves pain because mm-hmm. of his guilt over the accident. Um, what's hard for me is that I feel like fundamentally human human beings are animals and we respond to stimuli in a certain way. And I just his stoicism throughout all of this torture um was you know, I did I found it hard to fathom. And I think the specter of, of misery, the the movie does kind of hover over this because, Mm -hmm. you know, in misery, you see, I think James Caan do what most people would do, which is you try a little bit of everything. You, you bargain, you beg, you play act, you manipulate, you know, and I just, that he would make no effort was strange to me. And also, you know, when he come, you know, he's chloroformed and dragged to the house. And when he comes to, in his tux tied to the chair, there's no surprise. He's kind of, he kind of looks at Lola like, oh yeah, I, I, I should have seen this was coming. You know, um, it's a very stoic performance. Though I would ask, you know, what, what do you make of the choice to take away one of two actors' tools, right? We've got yeah. the physical performance, we've got vocal performance. His, uh, he, his voice box is injected with bleach very early on after he comes to at that, that crazy bleach? dinner. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was antifreeze. It was bleach. Okay. I, I think it was bleach. Um, I mean, it was something to... Um, you know, to fry his his oh, voice box. God, six of one, half dozen of the other there, guys. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, like, he cannot speak after the first act of the movie is over. And so what can he do when, when that sort of tool is taken away from him? He can't bargain. He can't manipulate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there 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 is a, an incredible defiance, um, even even without... Um, having any language, a lot of eye acting, a lot of a lot of eye acting. Yes, um, but the, the I hadn't thought about the Christ stuff. I mean, I, I have you know, kind of as long as we're talking about his guilt and his his craving for pain. Um, I, the initial accident, I feel like, is very. It doesn't work the way they want it to work. Um, because what actually happens in the scene is it's kind of confusing. Does he swerve because the, the, the one of Lola's victims staggers into the middle of the road? Maybe, but what actually is going on in that moment is that his father just lit a cigarette and he turns to him be like, dad, you know, you're not supposed to be smoking. Um, so I'm not sure really why that accident happened. And if it happened because of a boy, 
in, in the road. Why doesn't mom understand that? What could you do? There was a boy in the road. You know, I, um, and why does Brent feel the guilt and start cutting himself for something that was very clearly not his fault? Yeah. I mean, like turning away to chastise dad for lighting a cigarette. I could see that's like, you know, I shouldn't have taken my eyes off the road. But if a bloody young man is going to stagger into your path, mm. what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. Listen, it's happened to all of us. <laughs> and I, I don't know what I would have done. I'm not a great driver. I probably would have hit the guy. But, you know, I mean, that, that moment is also sort of bookended uh, at the end of the film when Brent is driving the cop car and sees Holly running away from Lola toward his car. And he sort of gets an opportunity to replay a a similar moment, right? He now has control. He swerves the car out of the way, does not hit Holly, and throws Lola over the top of the car uh, when when he hits her. Which, you know, I think, to, to segue, um, in terms of a detention slip, I think they missed an opportunity there to um, give Lola kind of a... a transcendent moment you know we've heard that song i'm not pretty enough so many times through the film i remember when i saw it the first time and i I sort of always love when somebody unexpectedly gets hit by a car in a movie you know usually it's played for comedy but um in this moment you know she gets thrown over the car and i kind of wanted to see some kind of like aerial balletic apotheosis moment where you know lola (laughs) went over the car and spun and and transcended. And we heard the strains of I'm not pretty enough one last time before she like thudded back down. We didn't get it. I think that is like a a stylistic misfire. And that's a detention slip for me. So I have one more. This is sort of a question. You know, the expression, I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than than a frontal lobotomy. Right. So, well, here the question is, What do Lola and Daddy hope to accomplish by drilling just deep enough into Brent's skull to break the bone? Brent and Bright Eyes, for that matter, seem in pretty bad shape. But as you just pointed out, he does drive a car afterwards. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem like they went deep enough to give Brent a lobotomy. What's going on there? What, what, What is the intention? And do you think that they did lobotomize Bright Eyes, but simply mean to cause Brent pain am i remembering correctly you know she does the drilling she starts the drilling and then daddy has to show her how to sort of steady herself right so i think my assumption was this is her first time being a big girl and using the drill and she screwed it up well he says just enough to break the bone i think she probably needed to go a little deeper because he's still got fight left in him after that right oh i agree i agree so it seems like this isn't a lobotomy situation. It seems like they are just sort of like hurting him further. Whereas Bright Eyes seems like she probably did get some kind of traumatic brain injury. Well, I don't want to be what my friend Michael Musto would call a Lurleen by being a know-it-all about this movie. But Please. Um, I think uh, this is a page out of the Jeffrey Dahmer cookbook. You know, Eric, you may recall in session nine that a lobotomy is uh, is typically transorbital. It's yes. a leucotomy pick that goes in through the eye and yeah. sort of scrambles the brain. Here, what Lola is doing is drilling holes into the skull and pouring in boiling water. That's her intention, yes. Mm-hmm. 
so you know it's the it's not the breaking the skull that causes them to be zombies it's the breaking through the skull and pouring boiling water into the open wound and and so, and as i recall she doesn't get that far am i correct on that she does not get that far there right. is a, a great moment i think um which i sort of wish i pointed out earlier uh when she is preparing to pour the boiling water into his head, but she scalds her father's arm instead. Right, right. This is after the pit has been opened, and it's clear from the sounds coming out of the pit that they've done the old voice box trick with all of these boys before, because they all make these sort of like windy shrieking sounds when kind when of like kind of like the the people under the stairs. Kind of like the people under the stairs, though I believe their tongues were bobbed. Um, I quote Jerry Blank. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. But, um, there's a, a great moment that I do love sonically when his screams and the screams of the other boys in the pit are really kind of similar sonically to the sound of the boiling water in the kettle when it's when mm -hmm. it, it's um, you know their their screams kind of become the whistling of the kettle before she is attempting to um, to pour it into his head. That's a deep cut, sir. So to speak. <laughs> so to speak. Yes. Gina, do you have a, a third detention slip? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what Mia and Jamie are doing in the film. The most I can, the are they, I think they're palate cleansers. I think that he yeah. knows that he can't sustain that level of torture. So right. they are kind of in there like a little bit of comic relief. And I think he, he thinks that by revealing in the end that she lost her brother to Lola, that in and of itself justifies all the time we've spent with them. And I'm, I'm not sure it does. Yeah, that's why I referred to it as sort of the B story and not related to the main one. It definitely feels like something that is completely either a palate cleanser, as you put it, or seems like it's out of some other film. But would either of you not see a parallel to John Travolta and Nancy Allen in Carrie. No, mm. I didn't see it. Mm. I know what you're talking about, but I didn't. I didn't see it because that, for me, was part of their character building. Um, Nancy Allen and John Travolta do some very specific things that are leading up to the prom scene in Carrie. Um, it's also part of their character development. Um, so I. To me, it's 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 not a viable comparison. Gina, what do you think about that? You're pondering. I I I see I see what you're saying, but I feel like um, you know Nancy Allen really. My memory of Carrie is that she really engineers that situation. Mm. Um, like none of mm -hmm. Carrie's trauma at the prom happens without um, without her evil right. intent. So. Um, I guess I see her as determining action in a way that these two really don't. But I mean, I do think that there is kind of a aspect of, of the Travolta Allen pairing that does serve as kind of comic relief that lets the steam out of Carrie at a couple of different points. I think maybe that's what the intention is. And I mean, again, I do think that a lot of this film is about homage to other things. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that's, that is kind of how I read Jamie and Mia. All right. Before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess. 
maybe have a snack or two, maybe, maybe throw a shrimp on the Barbie. Um, do you or did you have a favorite recess snack growing up, Gina? We would get a little carton of milk and usually some vanilla wafers. So interesting. Yeah. And a, like twice a year, the crate of milk would arrive and it would be chocolate milk. And you would Ooh. feel that you had died and gone to heaven. And that is a very strong memory for me. Um, the day the chocolate milk arrives, you're just, it's nirvana. Now, just to, just to be clear, we're, when you say vanilla wafers, are we talking about the sort of uh, soft bite um, with the vanilla center, or are we talking about Nilla wafers? Nilla wafers, yes. Got Nilla it. wafers. Nilla, with the crunchy ones. Mm-hmm. Okay, well then let's take a break, and we'll come back for the superlatives. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, that speaks very highly of you. Well, he's very popular, Ed. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. There are people I work with, and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. Welcome back. It's time to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserved to die. So to start us off, let's do the first award, the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene, named for director Gaspar Noe, uh, whose uh, enjoyable and friendly fare include Irreversible, Enter the Void, Climax, uh, and and many other uh, delightful romps. Bradford Lorick, would you like to start us off with the Gaspar Noe Award? Sure. Um, and, and in a film that is uh, predicated upon the torture of its protagonist, which I think effectively makes neutral much of the, the, the bloodletting that we experience, perhaps the most disturbing scene is the scene in which Lola and Eric, her father, are having a dance as if they are at prom and he is her date. And it is very clear that she feels that she wants to kiss her father. I think that the incest or the implied incest or the implied desire for an incestuous relationship between daughter and father is ostensibly the most disturbing scene. Okay. Gina, what do you have for the Gaspar Noe Award? I'm I'm kind of in the same ballpark. Um, I I find the whole situation with bright eyes incredibly disturbing, and um, uh, specifically Lola's hostility toward her. Um, it just I just desperately wanted to know what went on in that family. Um, or I don't know if maybe it's because I am a mother. I just uh, you know that kind of um, mm-hmm. hatred of the mother um, I found really disturbing. It also begs the question, 
Does having your brain boiled make your hair fall out? <laughs> oh, God. Um, you know, I contemplated naming the knife and the feet scene with the repeated mm-hmm. blows of the hammer for this or the salt scene. Um, that you know, was on my list, too. Yeah. Take your Take your pick. But for me... It's got to be the drill scenes, uh, especially when Lola asked Daddy to make a bigger hole so she can pour the boiling water into his head. And, you know, that's got to hurt. Which brings us to our second award, the Ellen Ripley Award for character that most deserved to live, uh, named for Sigourney Weaver's character in the Alien uh, Cinematic Universe. I think there are two seem to me to be two pretty nice dads in the movie. Um, and I, that would, one of them would be Brent's dad. The other one, Mia's dad. Um, I was, I was sad to see the the good dads go. Cause we, you know, spend so much time with the nasty dad. Interesting. Bradford. Gina, I am right there with you. I think the character that most deserved to live was Brent's dad, uh, mm-hmm. which of course would remove the entire motor from this story. But uh, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to Brent's dad. So sort of following up on Gina's comment about not knowing Bright Eyes, why she's called that, are they Connor Oberst fans? You know, why, <laughs> why, why, why give her that name? I don't know. Turn but around, you know, Bright Eyes. Turn around. I, turn around. But you know what? I'm going to give it to Bright Eyes because I don't know her backstory, but... She she genuinely seems upset of, at what's going on, and I was sad to see her go. She was a, a bright light in this film for me. Which takes us to the Michael Myers Award for character that most deserved to die and does. Um, Gina, who is this award named for? Uh, Michael Myers from uh, the Halloween series. Yes, thank you very much. Um, he is pure evil, dropped into the American heartland. He is, and and for that precise and well timed description, um, I'm going to let you start us off. Who deserves the Michael Myers Award? Well, this is a, this is a difficult award to give because, by my count, very few people die in this movie. Um, I I have to say Lola's dad. Um, but it's almost process of elimination because Lola survives. Am I right? I don't think so. Oh, you don't think so? First of all, you don't see it, but he backs up after he hits her. And I think it's strongly implied that he either decapitates her with a car or like completely knocks her out. I'm going with Lola. She she absolutely deserves to die. She I, She seemed so unstoppable to me that... I'm having a moment believing it, but yeah, if she's dead, then sh- then that's my answer. I am right there with you, Miss Gianfrido. I am giving my Michael Myers Award to Lola Stone, Princess. I am right there with you, Mr. Lorick and Ms. Gianfrido. I am also giving it to Lola Stone. Three for three. I like that. All right. Set us up for the next one, sir. Well, I think we should uh, hand out the Ken Russell Award for the most Baroque screen moment. Uh, named, of course, for the auteur filmmaker behind such classics as The Devils, The Lair of the White Worm, Whore, Salome's Last Dance, Listomania, The Listomania goes on and on and on. So, uh, Gina, would you like to hand out a Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment? <clears throat> yes, it was. It was. I 
took me some time to choose between two, but I'm going to go with uh, the basement boys feasting on Lola's dad. Um, and oh. I think a movie we haven't alluded to that I think is also in here is Fight Club. Um, I feel oh. like when they open up the door on that pit, I, it looked like Fight Club to me. It was, you know, um, <laughs> men, you know, like thin men with good bodies, no shirt, um, you know, kind of pushing each other around. Um, I, it looked, it looked like, you know, fight club with lobotomized boys <laughs> in the basement. I love that. Which who is the real Tyler Durden in this film? <laughs> um, Eric, uh, what, what's your nom for the Ken Russell award? You know, sometimes it's an aspect of the film. Sometimes it's like an entire act. But for me, it's one shot. And it, we talked about it earlier. It's it's the shot in which Lola, hurt but still crawling, comes after Holly and Brent in their car. Um, it's, it's probably the best setup and probably the best composed shot in the film. And maybe one of the best composed shots I've seen among all the films that we've um, discussed. So I'm going to give it to um, Lola crawling after the car. That is, I, that is a, a beautiful scene. Very true. Um, I'm going to go in a completely different direction as Baroque is very open to interpretation. I'm going to say that perhaps the most over-the-top moment or least necessary moment uh, is at a point when we have cut back to Carla's house, Carla being Brent's mother, and Holly is there, Holly goes into Brent's bedroom and she finds a card and a corsage that were both intended to be given to her sitting on Brent's bed. And the card has Humpty Dumpty on the front of it. <laughs> and inside the card is a message thanking Holly for doing what all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do, by which he means putting him back together after this six months of self-imposed psychic torture. And he concludes the note with the words, I love you, underlined... Uh, of course, this is um, after Holly has called him her emotionally retarded boyfriend. Uh, <laughs> I, I just think that is perhaps a very over-the-top gesture. You, you are such a, a hard-hearted son of a bitch. Uh, I, that's that's a very interesting moment, also because I don't, I don't, I saw that and I thought, did she put him back together? Because he seems like a total wreck to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> she hasn't done a very good job. She ran she out of makes, super glue at some, some point. Very nice work, odd. nice work there, Holly. Yeah, she makes some very odd decisions. What is with the scene where she calls her mom to say, "Oh, you're probably asleep because you're in another country," but I just wanted to talk to you. Um, I don't know what that's doing in there. And then can we just? She's not dressed right for that prom. <laughs> good point. Keep, keep going, Gina. Well, I mean, she looked like it looked like like the clothes that like on Three's Company, like if Chrissy Snow had to go to brunch, like it's like <laughs> it's a nice dress to like have brunch on a Sunday in California. But you go to the prom and everyone's in these really fancy dresses. And I'm thinking like you were going to wear that to prom. Um, and I how I make sense of it is that she does need to be a bit of the final girl 
in the end. And I think they wanted to make her not quite as, you know, fem feminine as um, Lola, but it's still, it's, it's a, she makes some odd choices. I love a good sardonic sartorial read. We've come to what is perhaps my favorite award. Well, let's face it. Everybody's favorite award, the Brad Dourif award for character that could or should have been played by Brad Dourif. And just to explain, Brad Dourif, of course, the uh, character actor best known for roles in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as Billy Bibbit, uh, Dune as uh, as uh, one of the Har- House Harkonnen, uh, Blue Velvet, uh, the John Huston adaptation of Carson McCullers' Wise Blood, and of course, our favorite Brad Dourif performance. What is that, Bradford? Oh, well, that would be as the character James Veneman, the Gemini killer in The Exorcist 3. Yes. So, but also, uh, Eric, mm, I, I, <coughs> we keep forgetting this. You're right. I'm so sorry. I never forget this. <clears throat> I forget it every Brad time. Brad Dourif, of course, is the voice of Chucky in God every iteration of Child's Play. Uh, Bradford, why don't you start us off? Well, I'm going to give this award. I think this is pretty easy, and I'm going to be pretty straightforward and traditional about this. I think I would have loved to see Brad Dourif play Eric Stone, Lola's father. I think he would have turned Mm. it into something quite unique. Not so far afield from my Brad Dourif award, because I am also giving it to Daddy, played by John Brumpton, especially... um, as you put it in your Gaspar Noe award, pining away after Lola, fighting off the urge to do things, although we know they've probably already consummated their whatever. Ugh. The, ugh, it is. Ugh. Their All special right. relationship. It's a special relationship. Gina, what do you have for Brad Dourif? I have something different. I did a little, a small rewrite. Cause okay. I'm a writer. Uh, so I, I'm, I have to do that. I, I would like to see Brad Dourif as kind of the king of the basement boys. I feel like it's it's Lord of the Flies down there. Somebody is in charge. Um, I, you may have gleaned this from, you know, talking to me for the last hour. I I couldn't get enough of the basement boys. I just couldn't. Um, I wanted to spend more time with them. And I think Brad Dourif as king of the basement boys would have been great. Um, and, you know, I, I am going to ask one more question before we wrap up, which yeah. is, yes, guys, who are the loved ones in The Loved Ones? I feel like the filmmaker would, pro- if he were here, would probably say it's the boys. Oh, interesting. That. Um, the boys in the pit? Yeah. The, the, are we going back to the one. pit, Gina? Yeah, it, it all leads back to the pit. It all um, leads think- back to that. <laughs> I think um, this is how Lola, you know, it begins with love for Lola. I don't think we get to see it, but I think we're meant to believe that there is this puppy love that she acts upon. And so the men are the loved ones. That's interesting. I, yeah, that's a, that's a viable reading of that title. I think it's more than viable. That is exactly who I would say the title refers to are the discarded young Mm. men in the pit. I think they are the loved ones. 
All right, so with that, we have arrived at our final segment of the night, the final exam. And this, of course, is the part of the pod where we give you our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and seen about this film. Gina, would you like to go first? I'm giving the loved ones a C. All right, Mr. Winnick. I'm going to agree with Gina on this one. I did find there are some diverting moments in this film, but just as many perplexing ones. So I'm going to go right in the middle and give this a C. Okay. Uh, I am going to give the loved ones a solid B. And I think for as much as we have tried to uh, interpret it, uh, for as many layers of metaphor as I may have tried to apply to this film, (laughs) um, I think at the end of the day, It's a grisly, slippery, scary thriller of a movie. Um, I enjoyed it on a very visceral level. Uh, And I think that if that is all the writer and director intended to do, he has succeeded, though it is not without its flaws. So I'm giving it a solid B. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Scare You, and if you did, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends, have a listening party, bring some snacks, maybe even subscribe. Yeah, and make sure that those snacks are Nilla wafers uh, because, you know, I hear those pair very well with milk. I mean, this prom, let's just remember, was all about chicken and milk. <laughs> That's Which is so vile and stomach-churning, I can't even talk about it. Yeah. A lot of protein, though. Um, be sure to check. <laughs> be sure to check out all 13 hours of season one if you haven't already. Um, But also be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareupod.com. And that's scare, the letter U, and pod.com. Thanks again to our guest, Gina Gianfrido. Uh, Gina, if people want to find you online, where can they do so? Oh, this is terrible. I don't have a website. That's okay. Um, what's, What's the second best thing? Social media? Hmm. I think I'm on Facebook. Um, I think Facebook. That's okay. I think Facebook. And Bradford, where can they find you? They can find me at www.bradfordlorick.com. You can find me on Letterboxd or on Instagram under the moniker E.A. Winnick. Our announcements have been by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, and the cast of the tragically short-lived Netflix miniseries, I Am Not Okay With This. Our theme music is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cubworth, mixed by us into a Bushman's handkerchief of bluster. (laughs) Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We hope you didn't find this episode a few stubbies short of a six-pack. I'd say it's more of a dog's breakfast. G'day, everybody. (laughs) Thanks for listening to Scare You. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.